This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Five years ago, the epic leak of the Panama Papers spotlighted the tax dodging of the rich and powerful all over the world, and it forced some changes to the rules over money that was being hidden here in New Zealand. Turns out, though, they're still concealing their cash, and the biggest leak ever so far proved that this week. And I think we can all agree, as much fun as I have doing this reporting, that's not really a way to run the world, is it? And as the Pandora Papers proved that journalists can make compelling stories out of huge dumps of digital data, we meet a musician who does current affairs in songs. But before all that, double bubbles and picnics are now possible in Auckland, but disappointment and even desperation is rising as Level 3 lingers there, and now it's spreading south as well. Aucklanders will have more freedom to gather outdoors from Wednesday, but its alert level won't change. That was how TVNZ One News kicked off last Monday, soon after the announcement of, well, more Level 3 in Auckland, but with some restrictions easing, including double household bubbles and picnics in the park, as TVNZ's Corazon Miller told viewers soon after. Well, look, this is great news for Aucklanders who've been living through their longest lockdown so far of around seven weeks. So from Wednesday... But was it great for Aucklanders, some of whom were hoping for more freedom sooner, while others feared it might amount to waving the white flag on COVID, as Jessica Much Mackay told viewers soon after. The announcement was pretty wishy-washy when it comes to time frame. There wasn't anything definite. We heard Dr Bloomfield talking there saying at least four weeks for these new phases to come in. But in the meantime, Auckland's in this new three-ish level. People who'd been demanding a clear roadmap or a timetable, including many pundits in the media, were disappointed by the PM's lack of targets. But given recent news about the spread and number of new cases... Few should have been surprised that the Prime Minister didn't announce a drop to Level 2 for Auckland, except perhaps some listeners to News Talk ZB. Given politics has largely overtaken health and elimination is now over, as we sit here this morning, some sort of Level 2 is more or less likely to be coming your way Monday. Mike Hosking signing off the previous week, and he wasn't the only one on his network getting listeners' hopes up for this week that same day. Heather Duplessy Allen. Right, well, I still reckon here today, Friday, ahead of the weekend, I still reckon it's looking good for Auckland to go to some form of level two next week. But while Heather Duplessy Allen sounded pretty upbeat the Friday before last, her mood had clearly curdled by the time she came to write her column for The Herald on Sunday last weekend. Auckland, she said, was angry, and so was she. Angry at the lockdown dragging on. Angry that the boundary will remain and we won't be able to leave the city even in level two. Angry at the gang members hooning around West Auckland for a funeral despite lockdown rules. And angry at the cops for not charging the lot of them. But deep into the current lockdown last month, Heather Duplessy Allen was hosing down demands for lockdown loosening and anger about that. How can we possibly be angry about what's happening today? Delta was always going to breach our borders at some stage, and we're the last elimination country that hasn't had it. Back then, she insisted Level 4 was the only way, at least until everyone who wants the jab gets the jab. Anyone with half a brain can see that this is necessary if we want to maintain elimination, and surely that is something we do want to maintain. But by last week, Heather Duplessy Allen had changed her tune completely, telling listeners Level 3 wasn't working, and she reacted like this on air immediately after last Monday's announcement by the Prime Minister. Elimination is over. Put a date around today, October the 4th. They finally ditched it. It has been clear for weeks 
to any of us half watching this that we would never get back to COVID zero again, right? If it's in the gangs and in the homeless community, you're not going to be able to. Giving up is a good thing for us because we can just accept reality and start moving on, right? However... This roadmap is not a roadmap. She was just one of many in the media noisily demanding a so-called roadmap, but mapping out Heather Duplessis-Allen's own commentary journey in recent months would show several wild swerves, speed wobbles and some pretty tight and frequent U-turns. Heather Duplessis-Allen was also just one of many commentators lately who loudly and some gleefully proclaimed the elimination strategy over and several of those had cited gangs as the culprits. More on that in a minute but had the powers that be really eliminated the COVID elimination strategy? Newsroom's senior political reporter Mark Dalder, who scrutinised the details of the COVID response as closely as any journalist here, said the Prime Minister did signal that in Monday's briefing outlining Auckland's pathway out of lockdown. But not explicitly though, Mark Dalder said she snuck a momentous strategic shift into her post-Cabinet address right at the end, referring to elimination in the past tense like a postscript or an afterthought. But with health experts still telling the government elimination was still achievable at that point, why give it up? Here's what TVNZ's political editor Jessica Much Mackay reckoned on TVNZ One News soon after Monday's announcement. The Prime Minister has definitely listened to the growing frustration from Auckland and eased some of those restrictions despite us not having those case numbers under control. And when COVID Response Minister Chris Hipkins was asked during Wednesday's daily briefing, was he advised that fading public compliance had led to that decision to loosen Level 3, he also cited the media as a reason. No, but we've certainly had clear feedback that I think the mood is fraying. Correspondence, you know, the, the mood on the street, the media coverage. Chris Hipkins did clarify in that briefing he wasn't just responding to feedback via his Facebook Messenger feed, but it wasn't clear what media coverage may have influenced the government. Growing frustration that Jessica Much Mackay talked about there is real in and around Auckland after seven weeks of Level 3 and Level 4, and elsewhere over lingering at Level 2, and there's certainly been no shortage of news coverage and comment reflecting that. But the thought that strident, contrarian and often contradictory commentary that's channelling the anger of Aucklanders might have been weighed up against the advice of experts might be what Professor Michael Baker had in mind when he told One News this on Friday. The government signalled that we were moving away from elimination, which is um, understandable. I mean, it's been uh, it's really served us well for 18 months. But they didn't identify where we were going. And I think, unfortunately, the media in New Zealand and internationally uh, filled this void, and I think it was a very unfavourable um, message they then communicated. Now, Professor Baker wasn't specific about which media or what was unfavourable, but earlier in the week, former New Zealand Herald editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis cited commentary by the Herald's ZB stablemates and said that some of our news media are exhibiting signs of split personality backing the drive to boost our vaccination rates while at the same time devoting what he said were extraordinary amounts of time and space to malcontents demanding certainty where there can be none. On scoop.co.nz, another journalist who's been around the block, Gordon Campbell, claimed that commentators demanding that the government make things better during an unpredictable pandemic on a set timeline is the sort of thing you'd normally expect to hear from children. And those in the media who were itching to announce the end of elimination could now find it's a case of careful what they wished for if we all end up in a place where no one wanted to go and no roadmap for a way out.
With all that in mind, it was unlikely to be good news when reporters were alerted to an unscheduled audience with the COVID response minister on Friday during the 6pm news hour. And so it proved. Based on advice from public health officials, we have agreed to move Northland to alert level 3 from 11.59pm this evening for an initial period of four days until 11.59pm on Tuesday night. As we now know, two people were involved in this breach with fraudulent documentation to travel. Neither was being cooperative, with one of them still at large after three days. Now, naturally, the media wanted to know a lot more, and when the minister said that he didn't know of any connection to gangs, the media didn't believe it, following claims that many recent COVID cases were gang members or families connected to people breaking the rules. And that led to a lively chat between Kim Hill and mongrel mob Waikato PR person Louise Hutchison last Thursday. I'm just putting it out there to New Zealand that the media narrative that is being driven right now... Is but you're driving dangerous. the media narrative. I'm no, not no, talking no. about the this, media this, narrative. This, this, this I'm uh, n- Genuinely, I am asking you for facts and figures. The, the facts and figures are currently in the Waikato, there are zero members of any gang with COVID-19. All right, I will quote you on that. Zero members of any gang in the Waikato with COVID-19. Correct. And in the same programme, Kim Hill sought clarity from mongrel mob life member Harry Tam about gang members with COVID. I know there was a number of cases where people were identified to, to supposedly had gang connections, but they didn't. Um, you know, um, but I well, they're claiming <laughs> they're claiming gang connections when they haven't got any. No, no, they didn't claim to have connections. The oh, I see. Claimed. Yeah, right. And so we were able to clarify that. The Northland case created more questions that the media wanted answers to the following day, and on Checkpoint, Lisa Owen said that the COVID response minister refused to say if the woman now in MIQ was a sex worker, while at the same time, Heather Duplessy-Allen on Newstalk ZB as good as said she was. What kind of line of work are you in if you're not prepared to tell the contact tracers what you've been up to and who you've been seeing? Eh? Think about that. And many in the media were thinking about exactly that, but they only had social media rumour to go on until News Hub Nation on Saturday morning crossed to concerned resident of the North, Winston Peters. So you seem to have a lot of detail about this particular case, Mr Peters. Can you tell us um, who this person was travelling with, where they stayed in Whangarei and which marae they were at up north? I can tell you uh, who she travelled with and I can tell you which hotel she stayed at but I'm not prepared to tell you which marae at this point in time because that's known to the police and it was known to the Minister, Minister Hipkins and the Government and the Prime Minister days ago. Winston Peters went on to say the person the woman was travelling with, reported on Friday to be another woman, was actually Harry Tam, a pretty explosive claim. That prompted News Talk ZB's Saturday morning host Jack Tame to make a call. He categorically denied those allegations. He said he hasn't been to Northland at all during this outbreak and that he's currently in Auckland. So I called him in the 10 o'clock little news break there. And an hour later, he told his listeners this. Yeah, just, uh, I think, maybe making a phone call to the person at the centre of allegations is a base-level sort of journalistic (laughs) expectation. So I I can, at the very least, you know, confirm that he denies the allegations. It's an explosive issue. Uh, Well, I mean, I think everyone's just so twitchy about about the spread of COVID. As they they should be at the moment, I think a lot of us are feeling concerned. All the more reason to go and get double-jabbed. And to double-check claims that were made on Facebook, which may be misleading, before broadcasting them.
On TVNZ1 News on Saturday, reporter Helen Castles, who's based in Whangarei, told viewers this. Well, there's a real vacuum of information and that's got people talking and rumours swirling, including one in particular that's gone viral on social media that claims that the woman travelled to Northland with mongrel mob leader Harry Tam. Now, I spoke with Harry Tam this morning and he denies all involvement. He's in Auckland, he's not travelling with any woman, hasn't travelled to Northland and says he is now speaking with his lawyers in efforts to try and clear his name. So a story within a story there, and it's far from the first time Winston Peters has been involved in legal action with reputations at stake, if it gets that far. Now the real story at the moment is of course the spread of the virus, and as if to make that point, this happened on One News less than 30 minutes later. Melissa, this is a confirmed case in the small bay of Plenty town of Katikati. This information has just come in from the Ministry of Health just a few minutes ago, so forgive me, I am going to read out much of what we have just been seeing in the last few minutes. The Ministry is... The same day, the Far North Mayor John Carter said the rumours are now spreading as fast as the blimmin' COVID. And both of those are dangerous when people are twitchy and angry about exposure to the virus. And if the COVID minister's comments are to be taken literally, the government does now think that media coverage is one gauge of public appetite for compliance. Before the rogue rule-breaking COVID carrier in Northland hit the headlines on Friday, another individual was public enemy number one for many. What about you, Di? Are you feeling the anger? As someone whose livelihood depends on mass gatherings, I know I was pretty um, wound up um, seeing the old false prophet getting getting 1,000-odd people into the domain yesterday. It's Di Henwood, comedian and star of the Seven Days Show on ZB's Sunday session show last weekend. And the false prophet he referred to there was, of course, Brian Tamaki, the boss of Destiny Church, who helped to get over 1,000 overwhelmingly unmasked and mostly undistanced people to the Auckland domain to protest against COVID restrictions and in favour of freedom the weekend before. And while that protest got most of the media attention, there were others as well. One in Dunedin drew more than 100 people, including a city councillor, according to the Otago Daily Times. And at one in Gisborne, the main MC Leighton Packer, who's a local leader of the Destiny Church there, aired a smorgasbord of freedom-related grievances. And I'm standing for our water. I'm standing for um, our children. I'm standing um, for the freedoms of farmers. I'm standing against the ute tax. So there's many things that I'm standing for. But while the headlines picked out Destiny Church, a journalist looking on from a long way away noticed that the so-called family freedom protest wasn't all Brian Tamaki's work. Kiwi journalist David Farrier has called out the media for focusing on Destiny Church and its anti-lockdown antics while letting other churches such as so-called white megachurch, the City Impact Church, off the hook. In conversation with Jesse Mulligan on RNZ National, and later in A Piece for Stuff, David Ferry argued that our media have a bit of tunnel vision on Brian Tamaki and Destiny Church, while other religious influences went well under the media radar. And they're just being ignored because they're boring and it doesn't seem as... Um literally as as colourful as the media wants them to be. And David Ferrier went on to quote from Peter Mortlock, the leader of the City Impact Church, who also got behind last weekend's rule-breaking protest. 
He said, I don't believe the government right now. I don't believe the media. I don't trust Big Pharma either. Why is that? Well, if I mention the name Bill Gates or George Soros or Anthony Fauci, and it's not about conspiracy, it's just about plain facts, right? That's a direct quote, and that's the kind of stuff he's saying regularly. Now, in their own online posts, both those church leaders claimed the last weekend's protests were not organised by them, but by a previously unknown outfit called the Freedom and Rights Coalition. And the backers of that certainly know their way around social media, as one man who moderates the Facebook pages of some Auckland community groups told News Talk ZB last Sunday. The Freedom and Rights Coalition. They've been spamming all over the South Auckland and Facebook pages, sort of trying to drum up a whole lot of interest in those sort of low socioeconomic environments. Getting a groundswell, unfortunately, mm. out there. There's people with the Freedom, the Freedoms and Rights Coalition on their like Facebook profile that you can see at the very definitive black and white logo. If you see it, just block them, just delete them and walk away. That is, yeah. It's just frustrating. Yeah, indeed. Some of the people frustrated at what seemed to be a softly, softly approach to last weekend's protests by the police were cheered up when they eventually announced that two organisers, including Brian Tamaki, would be charged. And Heather Duplessy Allen was one of those pleased to hear it. Charge him for one reason and one reason only that I care about, which is social cohesion. But airing her own anger at lockdowns and her grievances against the government's COVID response almost daily over recent months hasn't helped social cohesion a great deal either. In the same edition of The Herald on Sunday, her ZB colleague Kerry McIver wrote, if we're not out of Level 3 this week, I'll bloody well be signing up to Tamaki's next protest. And she didn't mean that last bit, but some readers reacted badly and took to social media to say they were canning their Herald subscriptions over it. Hayden Donnell took a look at that in this week's Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday, along with a look at a rough week for Facebook as a former employee spilled dark secrets about the company on nationwide TV in the US. It's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions. Misinformation, angry content yeah. is enticing to people Very and keep, keeps them on the platform. Yes. And on Midweek Media Watch, Hayden also praised TVNZ host Hilary Berry for doing her bit by incentivising her newly vaxxed viewers by treating them to a chocolate fish in the post. That's available on our page of the RNZ website or the RNZ app if you missed it, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. Back in 2014, a source called John Doe reached out to German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung to say they had millions of digital documents held by the Panamanian law firm Mossack Fonseca detailing billions of dollars sheltered from tax, including here in New Zealand. The US-based International Consortium of Investigative Journalists assembled more than 300 reporters in dozens of countries to work on this huge dump of data. And two years and thousands of hours of work later, a huge range of stories came out all over the world at once under the banner of the Panama Papers. It was compelling stuff. Iceland's Prime Minister, for example, resigned after his own interests in a company registered in a tax haven was revealed during an interview with the Swedish broadcaster SVT. Mr. Prime Minister, have you or did you have any connections yourself to an offshore company? Uh, myself, no. Well, uh, the uh, uh, Icelandic companies 
Now, there was nothing quite so dramatic in New Zealand, but this country was also labelled a tax haven in the international coverage because of offshore trusts held here and in the Cook Islands. A collaborative investigation by reporters from RNZ, TVNZ and ICIJ member Nikki Haga revealed the scale of it. Now, surprisingly, many other outlets branded the Panama Papers a flop here because few smoking guns came to light, and no heads rolled here either, like the Prime Minister of Iceland's did. But our Prime Minister at the time, John Key, told TV3's Paul Henry there was nothing much to see here. Just because Nicky Hargis says it's a tax haven with the greatest of respect, he is the biggest conspiracy theory out, theorist okay, out there. OK, well, let you me know. talk to you about that aspect, because that, I agree with that. However, an independent review into offshore trusts here subsequently led to a law change to increase transparency and tighten up. So, five years on from all the disinfectant of sunlight falling on all that dirty money and the assets of the super-rich hidden from taxes... You'd hope that the problem was sorted. But not so. The following year, a huge leak to the same source, the Paradise Papers, revealed more corruption and tax dodging. And last week, an even bigger leak, thought to be the biggest to come to light so far. The sobering takeaway is that the problem is bigger and more ingrained in society and in the financial system than we ever believed possible. The Pandora Papers investigation has revealed three times as many politicians with connections to secretive offshore companies and potentially shady deals. And these rulers include serving presidents and prime ministers as we speak, including those people who've stood up on podiums publicly and denounced corruption. That was Will Fitzgibbon, a journalist with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, on RNZ's Morning Report last Monday, talking about the Pandora Papers, which the ICIJ says reveals the inner workings of a shadow economy that's benefiting the wealthy and well-connected at the expense of everybody else. The people with power and money are winning in that they are continuing to do their deals in the darkness. And we're really currently relying on journalists when they receive millions of documents uh, of leaks. And I think we can all agree, as much fun as I have doing this reporting, that's not really a way to run the world, is it? Will Fitzgibbon again. Well, this time, only the New Zealand Herald and TVNZ had access to the information here, and the heavy lifting was done by the Herald's Matt Nippet, a senior investigative journalist at the paper. His articles in the Herald this week revealed, among other things, that New Zealand registered trusts held nearly $300 million in assets for a Roman Catholic order that was caught up in an international paedophilia scandal. In its editorial on Tuesday, the Herald said the Pandora Papers had showed that this country is still a cog in a global machine that helps people in many countries shelter their wealth and cheat their own citizens. New Zealand needs its self-perception as a fair country to match financial reality, the Herald said, and only by first scrubbing our own house can we then in good conscience argue for a cleaner world. Well, this week, the Herald's Matt Nippet spoke to RNZ's podcast The Detail, a co-production with newsroom.co.nz, about just how a huge leak like the Pandora Papers gets turned into news and what might and should happen next. You know, as soon as New Zealand put in place some modest disclosure requirements, you know, four-fifths of New Zealand foreign trusts suddenly uprooted. And they didn't vanish. They just moved to other jurisdictions like Wyoming or the Caymans. Mm. But, you know, sure, it's a game of whack-a-mole, but if New Zealand isn't whacking its mole, it can hardly complain that other countries, when other countries don't whack theirs. It's the Herald's Matt Nippet on the Detail podcast in an episode called The Pandora Papers Reveal How the Other Half a Percent Lives. 
You'll find that on the RNZ website or wherever you get your podcasts. And for the full suite of eye-opening international stories extracted from the biggest dump of data ever made to the media yet, go to the website of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. That's icij.org. The links are right there on the homepage, and as it's a non-profit global organisation, you'll also find links to contribute or donate to its work. Well, as we heard there, investigative reporters like Matt Nippett can dig up stories that reveal a lot about modern life and our economy out of vast swathes of digital data that's incomprehensible to most of us, including journalists. And these days, data journalists can turn dense and boring numbers into compelling and informative interactive visual presentations. And while that shows that news stories can be found in places that aren't always obvious, you can also cover news in ways that don't seem like news if you're a bit creative. Hayden Donnell now meets one who covers current affairs in words and music. Late last year, a short documentary came out on the spin-off about a huge cache of toxic ammonia waste dumped in the Matoda paper mill. The film clearly relied on extensive research and connection to the local community. Watching it, you'd assume director Nadine Maxwell's decision to make the doco was prompted by that research or the people she interviewed. Instead, the spark came from somewhere quite different. Well, yeah, I, I actually grew up in, in Southland. I spent all my, my schooling years in, in Invercargill, but I wasn't actually aware of toxic waste in the mill until about two years ago when I went to a, um, a Don McGlashan concert and he had a guy called Anthony Tonin open yeah. for him. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, wonderful Anthony Tonin who has been yeah. tirelessly spreading word about the Matata paper mill uh, yeah. <laughs> for the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. So I went home from that concert and thought, what is the story? And then, you know, and then just kept on, on following it in the news. And I guess, as, you know, as you'll be aware, it, it keeps on kind of coming up in the news cycle and, and going away. But it's been, it's been stored in the mill since 2014, so you know, going on six years. That's Nadine Maxwell talking to RNZ's Jessie Mulligan about the origin of her film, The Paper Mill, Matoda's Toxic Waste Nightmare. Matoda Paper Mill is in Anthony Tonin's only song touching on local issues which are normally the purview of journalists. While many of his peers are mining their breakups and existential crises for material, he spent the last decade writing about the housing crisis, the decline of regional rail, and the 1940 Canberra air disaster. He's also likely the only person shortlisted for a silver scroll for a song about irrigation in the Canterbury Plains. Kia ora, Anthony. Welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora. Thank you for having me. The song of yours that first got me thinking about your work as journalism was Water Underground from the 2015 album Successor. Just first off, can you explain what that song is about? It was about the brilliant political manoeuvring that restructured environment Canterbury. I was actually working at BFM at the time, reading the news and writing the news in the mornings, and I saw that story unfold, and I could see the brilliance of it from a... um, you know, from the point of the view of the Minister for the Environment at the time, who was Nick Smith, I think his goal was to make sure that more uh, water was consented so that more, more dairy farms could be started in Canterbury. And the way that they communicated that story, they communicated it as a vague crisis, but it was also so complicated at the time that when it hit newsrooms, you looked at it and you're like, oh, this story, I can't really, I can't really communicate this story properly. I'm, I'm just going to put it at the back. And, and so I think a lot of people just had a sense that Canterbury's bureaucracy was in crisis, something needed to be done. And so they were able to sack the 
elected Council of Environment Canterbury and appoint commissioners instead. I mean, as an Aucklander, I'm sorry to the Cantabrians out there, but it isn't a story that I would have on my radar or even know anything about by this stage if it wasn't for the song. So is there a kind of a niche there? And should songwriters be mining the local papers a little bit more rather than just the depths of their own hearts? I think that could end quite badly. <laughs> there could be some quite bad songs that come out of that. I mean, I know that songwriting has a lineage from the town crier sort of thing. And, it, you know, songwriting used to be the art of, you know, balladeers walking the, the countryside, um, telling the news that's been happening in London or, or, or whatever. But when I, when I wrote Water Underground, I was quite interested in long form journalism. I was reading a lot of the New Yorker's reporter at large. And so I liked the idea of getting a more complex story into a song. And, and that, that's, that's a consistent interest for me is to try to get uh, characters that aren't straight black and white into my songs, complicated characters that you that you kind of like and kind of hate. And maybe in the past we've we've felt like there's not enough space in a song to do that. You mentioned Matoda Paper Mill. What's the story behind that song? How did it come about? It, it came about firstly through just a dramatic image. I was in the back of a tour van. Uh, I was going to play a show with the Chills and Invercargill. And we took the bypass on the motorway down to Invercargill. And I don't know, the van maybe was just going particularly slowly over that bridge. And I just saw this incredible image. It's like in Western countries now, post-industrial factories and things, closed factories that all closed in the 80s, 90s and 2000s. They're almost like our pyramids, um, the way that they're starting to fall apart. and but But also just the you look at the Matoda paper mill, it's just this mammoth piece of engineering. And when I got home, for some reason, I wanted to write about it. And what I found really shocked me. And it was quite fortunate considering I hadn't been looking for a, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't already know that it was full of toxic waste. So I just started um, re- reading online and reading some news pieces. And um, I realized there was this huge story there that wasn't really getting enough coverage it was being covered covered in the ODT at the time a little bit but it but it seems to me a huge story that in a nation that is aggressively promoting a 100% pure New Zealand campaign you know this is something straight out of the 1990s TV show Captain Planet it was full of actual toxic waste which could create an ammonia gas cloud if there was a big enough flood All things flow in their natural course. 
I certainly don't think that I would have been aware of that story necessarily had it not been put into song. And the song didn't just sort of bring attention to the story. It actually inspired other journalism in the form of Nadine Maxwell's documentary. Yeah, and that was great. You know, just like Water Underground as well, the song didn't make much of a big splash when it came out. I, I released it just before COVID, and so it basically got completely wiped out. But it seemed to grow and grow over time and, and a few people heard it and did something about it and and a few few journalists seemed seemed to it helped to prompt people to do more. I mean obviously also uh, there, there was the there were the floods as well, which meant that it started getting more attention. I almost the, the song imagines that the worst case has happened. We were very lucky that that it didn't happen, but gosh, it really almost did. And it was just depressingly predictable. You know, there's a line in there, greater minds will always cross this bridge to give their promise to the council and greater minds will always incorporate so that no one can be held responsible. I think the frustrating thing that I saw about the media coverage in that story is it wasn't really focusing on we weren't really having a discussion about our laws in New Zealand, the way that we allow companies to um, incorporate in such a way, even though they might be a, a, a foreign company based in London or Bahrain, wherever it may be, um, we allow them to create this new sort of New Zealand company and then sort of deliberately bankrupt themselves whenever there's too much mess to clean up or whenever they lose their big contract. And I'm not sure we've, dealt with that even though we've now dealt with the toxic waste in the Matoda paper mill. What are the similarities between what you can do and what a journalist can do and what are the differences what can they do better than you and what can you do better than them? A a journalist writes in words and, and a journalist can really go into detail and can meander through a story and attack it through many different angles. I can put something into a song I can make it travel in a different way the disadvantage for me is that I have to write the song in such a way that it's going to last. A piece of journalism can be extremely rooted in the present. It can be irrelevant next week, and that's not a failure for the journalist. For me, I have to try to boil the issue down to something very essential, and if not timeless, then at least rooted in the decade rather than rooted in that week and you know I, I think that's what I try to do so I'm a song like Matoda Paper Mill the toxic waste is now out of Matoda Paper Mill the issue of limited liability companies and who gets the liability of the mess 
is something that's going to be with us for a long time, I think. And you can cheat. You can go into emotions. You can talk an interior monologue about something like the Bronwyn Puller affair with Nick Smith, or, or you can talk about the motivations of the people involved in the Matoda paper mill saga in a way that maybe a journalist wouldn't be able to speculate on. Yeah, and I guess that's, that's a lot like fiction can, can do this same thing and can have a journalistic aspect to it. There's nothing holding me to telling the truth or being factual. I, I could enter a sort of fantasy land or I can take the story to somewhere that takes it into the realms of fiction rather than journalism. But I do try to be quite principled when I'm writing a song based on research. So I have a song called Lockheed Bomber on this newest album, which is about Canberra the Air Canberra Disaster. Air disaster. What will you see? What will you see when the plane comes down? You believe in God, but you really fear the ground. And I tortured myself trying to write this song to be a great song, but also to at least not say any falsehoods, to never make something up that wasn't, that didn't have some rooting in fact. And when I take it into somewhere fictional, I do it by implication. The same with Matoda Paper Mill. I, I tried not to say anything in there that I didn't have research to back up. And I don't know why I do that, but I just have an instinct that I should. Is it kind of like that ethical obligation that maybe a journalist feels as well to not go further than the facts will allow? Yeah, maybe. Although I'd, I'd have to say that if the song compelled me to lie I probably would uh, <laughs> and, and at the end of the day I'm a songwriter first and foremost and I'll, I'll do anything to make the song good with songs like Water Underground and with Matoda Paper Mill or, or Lockheed Bomber they're all rooted in research and I kind of stick to the research as the train tracks that the song has to ride on Hey thank you so much for speaking to me Anthony Great pleasure Aidan Donnell there talking to musician Anthony Tonnen, creator of songs that serve as a kind of current affairs. Well, the song we heard just there was Lockheed Bomber, and that's the bonus track on his recently released album Leave Love Out of This, on which you'll also find the previous track we heard, Matoda Papermill. And the first one we heard in that interview with Hayden was Water Underground from Anthony Tonon's 2015 album Successor. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this week, though we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Brian Crump on nights. And then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.